This is the Woodland Hills Family Church Podcast. Our desire is to inspire you and your family to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Now, enjoy today's message with Travis Bronner. Again, we're uh, starting this new series, Getting to Know You, and in it, we're going to be walking through the first two chapters of Song of Songs, talking about 12 markers of relationship formation. And so today, the first three that we're going to talk about are desire, insecurity, and character. Talking about these 12 uh, markers of relationship formation. Many of you know, uh, most of you know, and if you don't, Song of Solomon is the, the romance book. It is about romantic relationship. And so some of you with young people in here may be a little uncomfortable right now thinking, what's about to happen? Uh, but we want to reassure you we're going to keep this rated PG, okay? Um, every now and then we have a, a series or a sermon that will be rated PG-13. And uh, before we do that, we send a notice out on social media. There'll be signs around so that you'll know that. But our desire in this is that uh, even in this topic, that, that you as parents, with your kids, young people, we can have conversations. We want to keep the conversation open and flowing in this, Okay. Now, in the Bronner household, we try to keep the conversation open and flowing as well. We try to practice that. And let me give you an example of what I'm talking about with this. Uh, our son Mason is six, and he's in Wildwoods. And every week they get a God time sheet, which is a page with some assignments for them to do throughout the week and activities to do with your family or with a friend or something. And this one particular week, a few weeks ago, he was given his God time sheet, and on it was a compliment telephone game. Supposed to pay a compliment to, compliment to someone through the telephone game. You remember the telephone game? First person tells the second person, and so on until it gets to the last person. Well, the first person was supposed to compliment the last person and, and pass it on down the line. So my wife, Carrie, wanted to compliment me, and so she tells our son, Mason, who's six. She says, Daddy is a good hugger. And so Mason then passes that on to Kaylin, our 13-year-old daughter, who then tells me, and I get to hear my daughter, 13-year-old daughter, tell me what she heard her six-year-old brother say, which was, Daddy is a good lover. <laughs> and my first thought was, well, thanks, babe. <laughs> what can I say? And my second thought was, this is at least a little inappropriate for our child's Sunday school assignment. But then again, we're keeping the conversation open and flowing, keeping it PG so that hopefully you don't have any uh, awkwardness, at least limited awkwardness, in having conversations in your family. Now, I want to talk for a moment about marriage and family. We are Woodland Hills Family Church, and marriage and family are woven into the DNA of everything that we do here, in our ministries, in the sermons, um, what our kids are learning, and... Uh, we, we have that in place for a reason, and uh, I want to talk to you about that. Uh, efficiency is one of my favorite things. Anybody else that in business or in your family, efficiency. If I can accomplish a lot of things with a simple task, I'm all for it. I love it. How we can, we can with little energy, little uh, uh, effort, we can uh, accomplish several goals at once even. I love that. And you see, we have an enemy, Satan, who has one goal in mind. His primary goal is to thwart you from fulfilling your mission of, of fulfilling God's purposes and plan in your life. That's what he wants to do. And the enemy loves efficiency as well. Why? Because you see, God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present. And Satan is none of those things. He can't be everywhere at the same time. He can't do anything that he wants to do. 
So he must be efficient in trying to accomplish his goal, affording your mission to fulfill God's purposes and plan in your life. So if I'm Satan, I'm going to look for some way to be efficient in that. And I'm going to do my research, and I'm going to see where I can find something that creates devastation. And what we know is, is where there is deviation from God's design for marriage and family, there's tremendous downstream devastation. We know that from secular data regarding mental health, regarding crime and even imprisonment. We know it from the poverty uh, data that we have. So if I'm Satan and I want to I get you angry, I want to get you poor, I want to get you depressed, I want to get you hopeless, even more likely to commit crime than target acquired. I'm going after your marriage and after your family because I know not only am I getting you, I can affect downstream generations as well. That's the way that the enemy likes to be efficient. You see, the family was the first institution created by God when he put man and woman together. He created the institution of the family before he created any church, before he created any nation, any government, anything else. And in this, we know that this is a sacred institution, and there are devastating consequences if we allow the enemy to infiltrate it. That is part of why we believe that equipping the saints involves talking about marriage and about family. And I want to address something else. You may have been hurt by this institution, by marriage and family, by a parent, by a child, by a spouse, a former spouse, in many different ways. And we want you to know that we care about you and we're here for you in, in several ways. Now, we have ministries like Divorce Care and Grief Share. We have a prayer team. We have care pastors. We have people that want to walk through hurt with you in that. But you need to know something. It was not God's design that hurt you. It was sin that hurt you. God had a perfect design when he created marriage and when he created family. And it is sin that broke it. It is marred by sin. When I was a, a surgical intern at the OU Medical Center in Oklahoma City, I was on the trauma team. And there was this young man that uh, had, had survived this car wreck, which he should not have survived. And he was wearing his seatbelt, and he had some injuries from the seatbelt. But again, he shouldn't be alive. And I remember this member of the, the trauma team saying, I've seen this before. That's why I don't wear my seatbelt. Because look at the injuries he has because of that seatbelt. And, and the logic blew my mind. I'm thinking, he's alive. We're going to fix his injuries, and he's alive. You see, because the seatbelt caused injuries doesn't mean it's not a good design. And that it, that it doesn't save lives, right? You see where I'm going with this. We're asking you to not throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater. God's design is the best design for romantic relationship, for marriage, and for family. Now, a little, more, a little bit more doctrinal housekeeping as well. I want to talk to you about mankind and what we believe about mankind. We believe a lot of things about mankind, but uh, a, a couple of things. One is uh, every human being is knitted together in their mother's womb at the genetic level. At the time of conception, God creates us male and female. We heard it from the beginning. God created them male and female. He created them. And as God knits us together, knitted each of us together, he determined male or female. And in the romantic relationship, we understand that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and become united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So what we understand from that is one man, one woman for a lifetime. That is God's design. And we can sometimes come under attack uh, being told, shouldn't, uh, as Christians, shouldn't you love everyone? 
And shouldn't you allow people to love whom they want to love? And the answer is yes, but let's define the terms. Because this English word love is pretty simple and can be uh, rather blurred sometimes and used in the wrong way. The Greek, I believe, is better about this. You see, there are six Greek words for the word love that we tend to just use love to describe all of them. Agape is a love for everyone. Yes, we believe that we should love everyone. An unconditional love for human beings who are image bearers of God, therefore we love them. That's, that's loving your neighbor. Philia is a brotherly love. You love your brother or your siblings, your family in a different way that you love your neighbor that you may not even know. Philosia is self-love, a love of self. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Ludus is playful love. See, it's Ludus that allows me to approach my buddy, slug him in the arm, tell him he's ugly, and that was an expression of love. <laughs> Pragma is a deep knowing love, an understanding of someone, long-standing. So you think of a couple that's been married 20, 30, 40 years and beyond, a deep knowing knowledge of one another. And then there's this eros love, which is romantic love, which is the, sub- <laughs> which is the subject of what we're talking about in Song of Solomon. This, this marriage relationship, you see, is unique. Yes, we should love everyone. People can choose to love whom they choose to love, but, but God tells it that this relationship, his design for it, this eros romantic love relationship is one man and one woman for a lifetime. What's interesting is that that marriage relationship is really kind of a, a unique blend of these three. But you can have Ludus playful love with someone that you is not your spouse. You can have pragma, deep knowing love with someone that's not your spouse. But this is where it gets exclusive in this romantic love relationship. So Song of Songs is the subject of our study. If you don't know, it is Hebrew poetry. It is part of the wisdom writings in this section of scripture. Uh, It is the, the poetry and wisdom writings. It is an allegory, which means it's a symbolic narrative written kind of in the form of a play. And uh, we've got main characters in it. One is the, the Shulamite woman, if you will. This is basically a country girl. We know about country girls around here, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we got one right back here. We've got the, uh, the shepherd, also re- referred to as the king uh, in this allegory. And we have uh, the daughters of Jerusalem, which are basically kind of like the, the choir in the background. Uh, the friends and support and speaking into this relationship. When we have our characters, and this sets the stage for this picture of God's design for this eros romantic love relationship. And we also want to address something. We, we understand that some of you may say, I've blown it in this. Maybe, maybe you look back on your past and you have regret uh, in, in this type of relationship, and you say, I've blown it. Well, I want you to think about someone that you think has got it right. Think of a, a couple or, or what, what the husband or wife that you look to and you say, they, they have done it right. Even someone that you might say, you know, if, if they were to write the book on godly marriage, uh, uh, it, it would be them. It should be them. Now let's jump into the scripture, Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 1. And verse 1 is very short. It simply says, Solomon's Song of Songs. Solomon, uh, most believe, uh, wrote this book, wrote this allegory, this play. Well, well, who is Solomon? Well, Solomon was king of the Jews. He was very rich, thought to be one of the wealthiest people to ever live. He was very wise, thought to be one of the wisest people to ever live. And oh, by the way, he was consumed by lust. In all of his wealth and popularity, he spared himself no desire. 
He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Spared himself nothing. Right? And yet, this is the guy that God chose to write his inspired word on the godly design for marriage. Interesting, isn't it? Tony Evans puts it this way. Given what we know of King Solomon, it might seem strange that he would be the author of the Song of Songs, a love poem about a monogamous romance. Nevertheless, God sovereignly used this man to give us a divine perspective on what real romance ought to look like. And that's Solomon. So what does that tell us? It tells us that God redeems broken people. It tells us that God redeems broken relationships. Speaking of having blown it, it tells us that God makes beauty from ashes. This beautiful picture that we now have through Solomon. It also gives us a display of the redeeming power of Jesus Christ. How through his forgiveness and his grace and his transforming power, he can change you. It also tells us that it's never too late for you to decide to do, God, do things God's way and in his design. Let's move on to verses 2 through 4. It says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the young women love you. Take me away with you, let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. This is the Shulamite woman, the shepherd girl, one of our characters, right? And, and what she's doing is, is expressing to the shepherd or the king her, uh, what, how she feels about him, right? And so she's basically saying she's got the hots for him, right? She digs his chili. He tickles her fancy. She has eyes for him. And some of the youngest generation might not have ever heard any of those phrases. And so for, for that young generation, let me sum up verses 2 through 4 for you in one single Hebrew word, which is, hey... Some of you have never heard that word said that way. I have never said that word that way, and frankly, it feels awkward. What we're talking about here is desire. This is the first marker of relationship formation is desire. Now, desire uh, starts with a physical attraction, a visual attraction, someone that you see and you find attractive, right? And we're not going to talk too much about attraction because that's one of the markers we're going to talk about next week. But attraction, physical attraction, is part of desire. And the thing about desire and physical attraction is that can change over time, can't it? Again, we're talking about single, dating, married, married for a long time. And so that can change with time. But let me tell you, it doesn't have to change with time. Because here's what happens if you're willing to. Spouses, at the time of your marriage, at the time you decide on who your spouse is and you're married, you at that moment determine that your spouse is the standard of beauty. Your spouse is your standard of beauty, period. Now, uh, a pastor I once heard uh, communicated this very well, and, and I'm going to speak in terms of Travis and Carrie, my wife, and so if someone was to say, Travis, do you prefer blonde or brunette? I would say, I prefer Carrie. We've been married 25 years. I still, I prefer Carrie. That's, that's what I desire. I said, well, what color hair do you prefer? I said, I think she's going to the salon tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> babe, are you changing anything? Uh, 
you're going to shave your head? <laughs> Looks like I'm in the bald. <laughs> See, something happens when you establish your spouse as the standard of beauty. When, when she changes, beauty changes. She is now my standard of beauty. Now, desire moves beyond a physical attraction and more into those other love, right? The pragma and the ludus. As I desire, if you, as you have a desire for someone from this attraction, you get to know them, getting to know you is what we're talking about. This pragma, this deep knowing love, you want to lean into that more. And you learn more about the person, and you want to know more, and you want to have fun with them, that ludus love. And so desire runs deeper than just a physical attraction. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Follower of Jesus, this should be the most desire-inducing attribute of someone that you are seeking. And here's how that plays out for me. My wife, Carrie, whom I desire greatly, and my desire grows deeper and deeper because as she fears the Lord and she's seeking Christ and maturing in her faith and leaning into him, what happens is it derives other desirable characteristics that, that continue to drive that, that desire, such as kindness and compassion integrity, loyalty, that should be utmost uh, for those who are followers of Jesus, seeking someone who is seeking the Lord. The Shulamite woman said it this way in, in uh, verse 3. We already read it. We'll read it again. Your name is like perfume poured out. Name. What we're talking about is character and reputation. The character and reputation. You see, proper desire for a relationship then should take character into consideration. And this character, is this, this is one of the other markers of relationship formation that, that we should be utmost concerned with as we're seeking a relationship. And how do you do that? You observe how he or she treats people, how, how he or she handles stress, how he or she responds and respects authority in their life, how he or she honors or dishonors their parents, not obey necessarily at that age, but honors we should honor our parents uh, for the rest of our lives. And how are they doing that? That you can observe and you can see someone's character. Proper desire for relationships should take character into consideration. Moving on to verse 4. And, and this is the daughters of Jerusalem that we're hearing from now. The friends, the backup singers. They say, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. How right they are to adore you. So we see we've got the people around this couple the, the, the Shulamite woman, the, the country girl, and, and the, the shepherd, the king. And then we've got these backup singers that are now speaking into the relationship. And what they're doing is they're affirming this relationship. Remember that you should look into character when desiring a relationship with someone. And so for those that are dating, this is going to be different for you than for those that are married. How it works in dating is you've got people around you that are speaking into this and advising you. And you should seek advice and wisdom. Just like you seek advice and wisdom in everything in your life, you should, you should seek the counsel of those that know you best, that maybe even know this other person. Is this a good relationship? What do you know about the character of this other person? Is this something I should pursue or not pursue? And that's how that works in a dating relationship with the backup singers in that setting. If you're married, this is very different. You should not look to your friends for an opinion about the character of your spouse. Right? The backup singers in marriage are just that. Like for, for me and my wife, Carrie, our backup singers are for Team Bronner. They're not for Travis. They're not for Carrie. They're not offering opinions on individuals. What they're doing is they're supporting us in our marriage. 
That is how that works with the backup singers. Song of Songs, then chapter 1, verse 5, says, Dark am I, yet lovely, daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar. This is the Shulamite woman again. Like uh, in the tents of Kedar, Kedar was a region where the tents were very dark and tanned because of the, the, the type of animal skin that they used to make the tents. Like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. Why is she ashamed of her complexion? Well, read on. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyards, my own vineyard I had to neglect. So she's speaking, first of all, of physical insecurity here, that she was ashamed of her appearance. And uh, why did she appear the way that she did? Well, she says it because her family made her work in the vineyard, physical labor, out in the sun. And so that clearly uh, shows that she, she is insecure about her family of origin. Um, she's embarrassed. She's ashamed. And uh, what we find then is that in insecurity, uh, it can be for a lot of different reasons. And we know then also that, that, that she would have looked at herself, looked around her at the other women around her, say maybe the friends or the backup singers, and seen them and their complexion. Maybe their family came from more money where they hired people to work the fields and uh, weren't darkened by the sun, as she said. And so she's insecure about that. Comparison, then, we know, is at the root of insecurity. As we look around at others, as, as husbands look at other husbands, wives look at other wives, and we can find ourselves comparing ourselves to others. We can even find ourselves comparing our marriage to someone else's marriage and be insecure about that. But comparison is at the root of insecurity. And we do that. We tend to do it different. Men and, and women tend to do it differently. Women, uh, you do tend to be insecure about physical appearance, tend to be insecure possibly, uh, in your role as a mom or a wife. You may be insecure about contribution to organizations and activities, and am I doing enough? I'm not doing enough as much as so-and-so. I'm not as good a, a mom as so-and-so. And you find yourself comparing yourself to others, creating insecurity. Guys, we're different about this. When it comes to physically, we always think we got it going on, don't we? I can gain 20, 30 pounds, lose every ounce of athletic ability I have, and I think I still got it. But we have our own insecurities in different ways. We can be insecure about our profession, about our vocation, about work, about accomplishments that way, about financial situations. We can be insecure. We can be insecure about our influence in a community or a group, um, whether or not we think we have enough clout. Uh, we find ourselves being insecure. And, and it's bad enough that we can compare ourselves to others. And I want to speak to something for just a moment, very carefully and sensitively, to say that as husbands and wives, you have to be very careful and cognizant and understanding as you are speaking highly of someone of the opposite sex your spouse is listening. And in a context where you are not providing encouragement to your spouse, that can create significant insecurity. That's very important for us to understand. Spouses, we should be a source of security to one another through encouragement and compliments. Again, compliments we're gonna talk about next week more we're not going to talk uh, at length about that today. But notice I said we should be a source of security to one another in our encouragement. Why a source? Because I think you all know Jesus is the source. Jesus is your source, not your spouse. And so what we have then in, a, in this relationship, best case scenario, is two individuals who are plugged into Jesus as their source and who are constantly building one another up encouraging one another, 
helping in any insecurity they have, knowing, though, that individually we are plugged in our one and true source, which is Jesus Christ. Be encouraging. Pay compliments. Tell your spouse every now and then, hey, you're a pretty good hugger. (laughs) Some of you are going to be using that for code now around your house. And we're going to have a whole generation of kids at Woodland Hills that are going to grow up wondering why their parents were always talking about hugging. What was the big deal? <laughs> Let's move on to verse 7. This is the Shulamite woman. Again, she says, Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman besides, beside the flock of your friends? This is her saying, Bro, don't leave me hanging. Right? I'm putting myself out there. I'm showing you that I have interests. What, don't leave me hanging here. And he responds in this way. He says, if you do not know most beautiful of women, stop there for a moment. Most beautiful of women. Remember the description she just gave of herself. Put, put all subjectivity aside, what you find attractive or not. She described herself as someone who had to work out in the fields and clearly had a lot of sun damage to her skin, may have even been kind of leathery, probably disheveled hair, dirt under her fingernails. And I think it's safe to say that if there were magazines then, she would not be put on the cover as, as the cultural and societal idea of what ideal beauty looks like. And yet, what does he say? Most beautiful of women. She is his standard of beauty. Most beautiful of women. Follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. What he's saying there is, let's do this. He's saying, I have desire for you as well. Let's do this. So what we're talking about there is pursuit. Pursuit tends to follow desire. We have desire between the two of them. The backup singer is saying, yes, this is good. We affirm his name, his character. We delight in your love more than wine. That desire to get to know each other then progresses, right? So now that they're attracted to one another, they've expressed, yes, I'm interested in getting to know you. That's what they desire. I want to get to know you. I want to have fun with you. Remember that, those that have been married a long time? What was natural early on must be intentional later on, getting to know you, having fun with you, pursuing you. We have to remember that. Now, the other wonderful thing about this book and these passages is that this This is part of the symbolic narrative of Song of Songs, which we read about in Jeremiah 2.2, which says this. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. This is speaking of the desert wandering of the Israelites. When when they were out in the desert and uh, the Lord uh, would give them a pillar of smoke to follow in the day and a pillar of fire to to, to follow at night. And what did they do? They pursued him. They fixed their eyes on that pillar that he gave them. And they pursued him. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this is Paul quoting Genesis. But then he says this. This is a profound mystery because we think he's talking about a man and a woman being married, right? Which he had just in that passage finished talking about. But then he follows up. But I am talking about Christ and the church. And we understand that that the church followers, the collective body of believers, are the bride of Christ. And what does he desire of us? To fix our eyes on him, to pursue him. And you may have been a follower of Jesus for many, many years. And you may remember the day of your salvation 
and remember the energy and the desire to pursue the Lord that you had at that point. The question is, are you still pursuing him? Do you still have that desire? Are you still living in the character that he wants for you? Because remember, just as in relationship, in our faith, what was natural early on must be intentional later on. This is God's design. And the symbolism there is beautiful as we understand our relationship, the church, with our groom, Christ, and the pursuit that he desires. Again, you may have blown it. You may have been hurt. But we understand that that brokenness is not because of God's design. It's because of sin. Because sin has entered the world and broken God's perfect creation. God created everything in a perfect way. Our physical condition, we know that we get sick, we get injured, things go wrong. In this institution of marriage and a family, we know that because of sin, it is broken and people get hurt. But remember, buckle your seatbelt because it is still the best thing we have, this design and God's design for marriage and the romantic relationship. Seeking relationship, we're talking about a romantic relationship now. Remember that proper desire for relationship should take character into consideration. Plug into those around you. Is this person one that I should pursue? Spouses, be a source of encouragement to one another. While you yourself are plugged into the one and only true source of life, Jesus is your source. Let's stand and pray together as we close this morning. Father, we're grateful for this book that you've given us through a broken human being, which we know all human beings are broken. And we're so grateful for uh, the, the fact that we can see that you can make broken things beautiful, Lord, that you can transform people, that you can transform relationships, that you can redeem people and relationships. We're grateful for the instruction that you give us in your design for this romantic relationship. God, we know that uh, we frankly screw it up because we are sinful people. But we, we look to you for grace, for forgiveness, and, Lord, uh, for guidance that you would give us a pillar to follow, knowing, uh, Lord, that your way is best. We pray for the families, that uh, conversations would, in fact, be open and flowing, and that, Lord, we would uh, fortify our defenses against the enemy who wants to infiltrate this institution of marriage and of family. We pray blessings on the families uh, that are here, those that are involved, those that are visiting, Lord. We pray uh, blessings on their marriages on their children and on their children's children, Lord, that you would protect us from the enemy and his tactics and his ways of trying to uh, distract us from what it is that you desire for us, that he would not thwart our mission to fulfill our purposes and our, uh, in our plan and our life that you have for us. We love you and we give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.